We are continuing, for those that are new to Christ Community, in a study of the book of Philippians. Today we are uh, turning the corner. We only have a couple of weeks left uh, through the end of this month as we um, finish out our latter part of the book itself. Today we are focusing on chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, verses 4 through 7. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Listen as I read God's Word. Rejoice. In the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your word reminds us again that in the midst of our world, our journey in this world, all the relationships that we have with others, all the circumstances and activities that we continue to engage in that come upon us planned and unplanned that you're an ever present source of strength a constancy among a very difficult journey thank you father that you are our constant hope our constant Savior and Redeemer amidst all that we go through. Help us, Lord, to turn to you first and foremost, to look to you, to speak with you and to commune with you and to listen to you as we encounter each and every day difficult days and not-so-difficult days. We lift them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The National Institute of Mental Health, um, I was looking at some statistics this past week and could not believe that it says 26% of Americans age 18 and older have some suffering of some mental health issue. That's over a quarter of our population. I had no idea of some sort. The third most common prescription drug given in the United States is antidepressants. The third most common. In the past 20 years, uh, prescription medications for mental health has increased 400% in our country. Ladies, even though this is Father's Day, 23% of women age 40 to 60... Maybe you missed it. I don't know. Age 40 to 60, take antidepressants. Women, 23% of women. These are just a few of the facts about the world we live in, the culture we live in in the United States. I'm sure there are many, many more. We are daily faced with opportunities to turn to lots of things to help deal with 
the stress that we all encounter, whether it be family stress, work stress, any type of <clears throat> anxiety that we feel, we look to so many things. And yet, this morning, Paul, the apostle, writes these words to the brothers and sisters in Philippi, encouraging them regarding to whom and to where they should turn in the midst of their struggles. For they were certainly at times anxious in the world they lived in. Paul himself related to them many ways and many times regarding his own stresses in ministry and in his life as he journeyed and was planting churches throughout the region. But he first speaks about this cure, I'm calling it, for our anxiety in relating to the antidote itself. What is the antidote of this cure for our anxiety that we all struggle with? Paul writes in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Not once, but twice. In the very beginning here, Paul says to rejoice. Twice in the same verse, because he's wanting to emphasize the need that all believers do have. It's not just a want, but it's a need that we do rejoice in the Lord. When we're not rejoicing in the Lord, when we're not seeking to truly have our joy in Him and His provision in our lives and what He has done and what He is presently doing, then we are missing out. We are missing that which is so vital in dealing with the stresses and the things that are upon us in the world we live in. How can we rejoice, though? How can we rejoice in the midst of such oftentimes very difficult circumstances, whether it be health-related or family-related or work-related or whatever it might be, how can we rejoice? Well, I think it's, as Paul has reminded us, keeping an eternal perspective on our life. I thought about what are the truths of our life in Christ? What does the gospel remind us of the perspective that is true when we are facing situations that seem to be hopeless. Uh, maybe this morning you are bringing into this worship service emotionally or mentally something that is weighing you down considerably. Maybe you haven't shared it with someone else. Maybe you don't feel like you can share it, but it's weighing your heart, your soul down greatly. When we when we feel that way, when we experience those times, whether it's right now, this very morning, or maybe this past week, you ha or maybe this coming week, something in God's providence will happen in your life and you will face that, that uh, difficulty or stress that will come upon you. How do we rejoice in those situations, keeping that eternal perspective? <clears throat> what are some of those eternal truths that the gospel reminds us of? Well, first of all, that you and I, we are God's specially chosen children. We are His. From before the world was ever created, God chose you and me. He chose us to be in His family, to be in His own family. It was before the world was created, God wanted us and knew we were to be His. Our eternal future is secure with Jesus. 
This future of where we will be forever is 100% secure. No matter what's happening today, what will happen tomorrow, we're sec- we have this security in Christ no matter what happens in this life. The second truth is that God's purposes are being worked out in your life and mine. Even though you, can't, may, you maybe cannot see how those purposes are supposed to be, how God's seeing the, his purposes working themselves out in your life, he is working them out. We were reminded about that in earlier in this book, that God is working all things together for our lives, for the good of the purposes he has for us. <clears throat> God's purposes are being worked out regardless of how difficult and dark some days seem to be for us, his purposes. The third truth is that God has promised to meet our every need and will never be left alone without his presence or without his help in our circumstance. God will never leave you alone, even, and this is important, even when you want him to. There's times when you would just rather say, God, I just... I'll do this on my own. I'll just do this, I'll white knuckle it, and I'll handle this myself. Because maybe in the past you've turned to him and he didn't seem to be there, so you're just gonna go ahead and handle it yourself anyway. Well, God won't leave you alone. He never leaves us alone. We cannot continue without him. We must have his very presence in our circumstances, every need we have, he will never leave us alone. The fourth truth is that God has given us others to come alongside us and support us in difficult times and to lean on them as needed. God has given us the body. He's given us one another. He's given us brothers and sisters, hopefully many in this particular body, but even outside of this body, other brothers and sisters we have been given in this world to journey alongside with. And he gives them to us, brothers and sisters, that we might receive from them support, encouragement as needed along the way. And he gives them to us that we might be an encourager and to seek to support others as we see needs arise around us that we can step into, we can step alongside of, and be that support for a brother or a sister in the family of God along the way. God has given us each other. He's also using your or my trial, our sufferings or our trials, to build our dependence on him so that it grows even deeper than before we've encountered a particular struggle. So when a struggle comes, a trial comes, a a suffering comes, something, an opportunity for you to truly trust God God and lean on Him, go to Him, then you will grow in your dependence on Him. You have an opportunity to depend on Him more, will you depend on Him more? Or will you turn the other way and depend on yourself or someone else or something else? It's often a choice we have to make regularly. Small things and large things, where will we turn? To whom will we turn? To what will we turn in our dependence? God brings us through things as he grows our dependence on him. So these are the truths. 
that will help us rejoice. These things are true. They are very real for us. And as you just reflect on them, you meditate on them, you think about, these are just a few. But all the things that the gospel brings us, all the wonderful truths that God has accomplished for us in his son, as we reflect on them, they should bring our heart to rejoice, to rejoice in our very soul of the very things God has done in Christ. You know, one of the fruits of the Spirit in, is in Galatians 5 is joy. Love, joy, peace, patience, that list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. You know, it's a key thing to understand that the fruits of the Spirit are not contingent upon circumstances. The joy of the Lord, uh, joy, peace, patience, any of the fruits that God desires to be cultivated by his presence of himself, by his spirit in our life. They're not contingent, they should not be contingent upon what circumstance we're experiencing. So if we're in a difficult circumstance, well then the fruit's not really supposed to be showing forth right now. That's only when life is going well. Then I can enjoy, the, I can experience and I can focus on seeing the fruits of the spirit of God in my life come to reality. No, no. The fruits of the Spirit are to be throughout our days, both in difficult days and in not-so-difficult days, in joyous times and in challenging times. The fruits of the Spirit are not contingent on our daily circumstances. And the Holy Spirit produces fruit amidst struggles and striving as much as the Holy Spirit produces His fruit in times where it seems somewhat easier to follow Christ in our life. And blessing seems to come fully, maybe, in ways that we didn't expect. The Holy Spirit produces fruit, especially in times of struggle and striving. In fact, if you think about this in your own life, this is probably true. It is in mine. Some of the purest spiritual fruit, some of the purest spiritual fruit that's harvested in your own life is probably produced because it was cultivated in a time of trial or difficulty. It was forged in that hot, white time of forging and melting that which needed to be purified. I'm not much of a wine connoisseur. Maybe some of you are, all are. But many years ago, uh, I think it was one on our anniversary, my wife and I took a trip, and it was, um, I think it was called Chateau Alain over in the northeast part of it, outside of Atlanta. And, and they have winery there and so forth. And so they had a little tasting type area where you went through and just had different ones you tasted. And, and so we experienced that little tour. And there was one particular little taste of a wine I had never had before, and they called it ice wine. And maybe you've heard of this wine. I never heard of ice wine. It's a particular wine that is developed from the grapes uh, at the first sign of frost when the grapes would freeze. And they have to be picked within hours of when the very first frost would come late in the season or else those grapes would rot and there'd be no use for them. And so, it's, it's a rare thing to capture the grapes to produce this particular very, very sweet wine because the fermentation process occurs 
prior to the freezing process. And it's just a rare thing. And so the wine is fairly expensive, but it's very unusual. You'll never taste probably anything as sweet as an ice wine. And I thought about that. For, for something that precious to be produced, it has to be produced in the harshness of ice, a very harsh environment for, for any grape to survive, uh, and it doesn't. And so that is an amazing thing to think it's produced the very sweetness of something that's very precious and very unusual in its own right because it goes through that process. The same is true with us spiritually. When we're pressed, when we go through those difficult external circumstances, things that press upon us from all sides, it's through those times of being pressed and forged that something very rare and very valuable spiritually occurs in our relationship with Jesus. It often occurs through those circumstances. Have you ever been in the midst of a difficulty and maybe some Christian who isn't in your situation, a brother or sister, comes to you and they're aware of your situation and they turn to you and they say these words, now honey, you just need to trust God and rejoice anyway. How do you feel when you're in the midst of just difficulty and someone just says, you just need to trust God and rejoice anyway. Well, if you're honest, like me sometimes, you really don't want to hear that from someone, especially if it depends if that person can't even identify with what you're going through. Maybe they've never experienced what you're going through and you know that and they see, it seems, some, it feels, it can, we must be careful, but it can feel somewhat shallow. If, if we receive it with a wrong heart. You know, you might be thinking that when that person shares that with you, yeah, well, this is, it's easy for you to say rejoice in the Lord and to trust God. You're not in my shoes right now. You're not in my circumstances right now. Have you ever felt that way? I'm sure you have. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul is telling his brothers and sisters in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. But you know, Paul himself is in real danger. He's in prison when he's saying these words, rejoice. He's in prison and he's rejoicing and reminding them to rejoice, to trust the Lord in the midst of their circumstances. You see, Paul is not one just to say, trust God and rejoice anyway. He's one who go through the difficulties and still say, amidst that journey of circumstance and challenge, rejoice in the Lord always. You know, the second part of the antidote is not just rejoicing, but Paul says in verse 5, to let your gentleness be evident to all. Being gentle. Not just rejoicing, but being gentle. Now, as we cultivate a heart of joy, the heart attitude should flow to those around us, and that's where our gentleness is evident. To be gentle is more than just to be soft-spoken. <clears throat> Sometimes we think of a person who's gentle, whether it be a woman or a man, that's a gentle person. They're very soft-spoken. They're very gentle in their mannerisms, in their manner. But gentleness is much more than just a so soft-spoken word or a quiet calmness in one's demeanor. Certainly that can be characteristic, but it's much, much more. <clears throat> Words that are synonyms with this word used by Paul are kindliness, forbearance, 
And then there's the word yieldedness. Yieldedness. To be gentle is to be yielded. These are adjectives that we have for what Paul is telling the Philippian church. It means that whenever we can yield, when yielding is possible in our life, without violating the truth of the gospel or the principles of God's Word, we should carefully consider to do so, to yield ourselves so that others are given to, that we are seen to not place ourselves first, but place others first, as we were reminded just two chapters ago. This means putting our own pride and our own desires aside and seeking to share God's grace with others, yielding ourselves to others. That's hard to do. It's hard to do in a marriage. It's hard to do as a child with your parents. It's hard to do as parents to our children, to yield ourselves for their benefit, for someone else's benefit. Atlanta traffic is uh, often a challenge, as many of you know. <clears throat> when you come to a four-way stop, what do you do? Are you the kind of driver that, I know I was here first, I'm going to go through that intersection? Or are you the person that usually waits and looks and see if someone is in a timely way about the same time arriving at the four-way stop, and you're going to let them go ahead and go? Are you a yielder? Are you a go-getter when you come to a four-way stop? When you're in Atlanta, eight, eight lanes of traffic, and you're trying to get to work or get home from work, are, are you one that will yield to someone who really needs to get off the exit or on the exit or wherever they're trying to go, or you're one that's like, I'm not about to let that person cut in front of me? And you just stay within six to five feet of the bumper in front of you so they cannot absolutely cut in front of you because they got on the interstate a little later than you did, and that's what they deserve. You know, it's just amazing how even something like traffic can bring out within us things that are very unfortunately true about our hearts. Do we seek to yield, to be kindly towards others? Paul reminds us to be gentle, but he also, <clears throat> besides rejoicing and yielding ourselves for the sake of the gospel, he says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The main part of the antidote for our anxiety and the cure is that we pray. Simply, we go to the Lord and commune with Him. Verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. You know, most of us, when something happens in a typical day that tempts us to worry or to become anxious, we have all kinds of responses to those situations, whether at work or home or wherever. We can, and we often do, just work harder. I'll work through it. Whatever it is that's stressing me out right now, if I can just have a, a few more hours to get what needs to get done, then I'll work through it. I'll push, and I'll get it. I'll get it done. I may, I may be a basket case, but I'm going to get through it. And you can't stop me because I'm going to get it done. Or maybe 
We just strategize and think about how we're going to go about things in a better way. And we, we spend hours and hours mentally doing gymnastics to figure out exactly how it could happen to relieve us of the stress that we have and the anxiety that wars within us. Sometimes we just try to forget about it. Just, I'm just going to put it out of my mind. If I can just put it aside, then maybe I will begin to relieve myself of some of this anxiety. Or sometimes we just become apathetic, just very indifferent to what it is that is causing a disruption in the core of our soul, and we just become very indifferent and almost sometimes spiritually numb to what God is trying to do in us and through us because we've just had enough. You know, all these and many other responses can we have when anxiety comes upon us, when something challenges our very trust in God. But Scripture's one absolute antidote for worrying, for anxiety, is coming before our Heavenly Father and pouring our heart out to Him, speaking with Him, to Him, about what we are going through, seeking His very presence and His counsel. First Peter 5 says, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Cast all of our anxiety on Him. He's big enough, strong enough to take all our struggle, all our worry. We cast it upon Him. Then Paul says, in every situation, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, we're called to pray. Every situation. How often do we really take our circumstances to God and talk to Him about them? Nothing is too large or too small we cannot take to God in prayer. Do we do that in every situation or do we try all the other methods and responses first? And if nothing else works, well, then I'll maybe resort to prayer. Or do we go to God first? Do we seek Him and then have His presence and His perspective on what we're going through first? In every situation, by what prayer and petition... I thought about this. Paul says both prayer and petition. I thought, isn't that the same thing? By prayer and isn't prayer and petition the same thing? And for, for Paul's perspective, he uses both words. And he's using them for different reasons when he says, by prayer and petition present our request to God. The difference is this. Prayer, Paul is emphasizing our communing, our worship. Prayer is a word used by Paul here to emphasize that we need to come to commune with God in a relationship with Him, in a worshiping of who He is and all that He is in our life as we come to Him in a prayerful, worshipful heart. While petition focuses more that our prayer is sharing our needs with our Heavenly Father, sharing the needs we have, our petitions particularly with Him that we know are there, either for others or for ourselves. And we come to Him first communing with Him in prayer, being in that relationship that way. And then the petitions are part of our communing with our Heavenly Father. By prayer and petition. First John chapter 5, John writes, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. 
And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Ask according to His will. How do you do that? That's a hard question to answer. How do you ask according to God's will? Because it says if you ask according to His will, He hears us. And it says if He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask for. Almost sounds a little bit formulaic. A little bit, if you're not careful. Ask it so that He hears. If He hears, then you get it. Because He says so. But how do you ask according to God's will? That's the very first part. That's the key. That's the linchpin for this whole passage right here. Answer, you know God's will when you commune with him, when you are in a relationship with him, when you are truly communing with him and worshiping him continually, regularly, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. In that relationship, you understand and he reveals his will to you as his child. It's in the relationship that you understand what and how you commune in prayer according to his will. That's how you understand his will. Think about relationships you have in this life. It could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a parent, it could be a close friend. Think about the closest relationships you have in this world. Do you know often what the other person feels or desires or wants in your relationship? If, they're really, if you're really close to them? Hopefully, yes, the answer is you do. Why? Because you're close. You're communing with them. If that's not there, then you're just kind of guessing. You're closing your eyes and you're throwing darts. Maybe this is what they want, or maybe this is what they like. I don't know, because you really aren't close to them. So you see, the closer the relationship, the more an awareness of the other person's desires, the other person's, uh, what, their, what their perspective is on what you both are experiencing, what, you go, what you're going through, is made evident, is made clear to both in the relationship. So that's how we know God's will is in the relationship. There's no particular method or formula. It's the relationship by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, Paul adds, with thanksgiving. When we come to the Lord, we must come with a heart full of gratitude. You know, much of our worship and our prayer should always include how thankful we are to God for his protection, his watchful care, his loving kindness, so much more. If we rush into God's presence, throw up a few things we need, and then rush back out with never, hardly ever expressing a word of gratitude or a thought of thanksgiving, how do you think he would feel about that in the relationship with you? What if that's how someone related to you, a friendship. Maybe sometimes as parents, you feel that way with your children. They seem to come to you when they need something, when they want something. But oh, how much does a parent desire to commune with their child, to be in a relationship with their child? 
Absolutely. You see, communing is so much more than just sharing what you need from the relationship and hoping to get it. It's being with one another in the relationship. That's what's so vital. Well, Paul's reminding us, thanksgiving, expressing, expressing our thanksgiving and gratitude. <clears throat> you know, when we come to God with thanksgiving, it automatically implies humility. It just does. You will have humility when you genuinely have a heart of thanksgiving. Because when you're thankful, then you have a perspective that God is providing, and it's nothing about you. It's not about you. And when it's not about you, then humility is presence. When it's not about me, then hopefully God is building humility in me because it's about Him, and it's not about me. When we trust that whatever response God will reveal to us is going to be the best response for us, then that's truly having humility and trusting Him in that. Here's a question. Do you go into your prayer time or when you seek God in prayer, do you pray asking God for something, but as you're asking Him for something, you're really telling Him what you want Him to do? You're not just asking Him, you're really telling Him. How do you go to the Lord in seeking His face for something? Do you truly come to Him and say, Lord, I don't know what your will is for this. I'm seeking you on this, and I truly am open and wanting to hear your response and to watch for your response to this. Or are you really going with those words? Maybe you're just repeating those words, but in your heart, you're saying, Lord, this is what you need to do. Lord, do this. I want you to do this. Are you truly willing for God to reveal himself to you? Paul reminds us to come to God with thanksgiving and an open heart, presenting your requests to God. Presenting our requests. You see, there should be specific, definite requests in our prayer time with the Lord. On behalf of others and their needs, God wants us to pray specifically for things and to look for His specific responses that we may glorify Him and point to Him for how He provides Praying specifically for things that God puts in our life are ways in which we can see his evidence of provision. And it builds our faith and it builds up others' faith. You know, just praying, God, give me a great day today and help everyone around me. That's not a bad prayer, but it's very general. We need to continue to grow in our prayer life towards specifics, specifics that God has given us to pray for. You know, God wants us to bring both big and small things to Him and to do so often, both big and small things. Not just once every few weeks or months when something big happens, then we go to God and pray about it. He wants us to commune with Him in a relationship and talk to Him about all that we go through. Well-known hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, The words are familiar to some, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. God calls us to his throne 
to make our wishes, our desires known in prayer as we leave the things of this world behind us and go to the Father. We've seen now what this antidote for our anxiety is about, both in prayer and rejoicing and yielding ourselves. But what evidence of the gospel in our joy is seen through dependent prayer? What is evidence of gospel joy and dependent prayer when it actually happens? Well, Paul says, when we go and we're not anxious, but in every situation we seek God with thanksgiving and prayer and petition to him in prayer, the peace of God. The peace of God is given to us. God's peace. You know, Jesus spoke often about his peace. In John 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Again, in John 16, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's not a matter of if you're going to have trouble as a Christian. You will have trouble. Jesus has said so. But as as we have trouble, we go to him. He has overcome the world. We take heart in him. The peace of God is promised to us. And when we have received that peace, it's not just any peace. It's not just a temporary, short-lived, very shallow peace. It's a peace that Paul describes that can transcend all understanding. That's a rare kind of peace. Have you received that kind of peace? Do you know the kind of peace I'm speaking of? Peace that surpasses all understanding? How do you get that in perspective? Well, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's writing the church in Ephesus, and he says these words, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see, in Ephesians, Paul writes in verse 19 that we should receive a love and know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's a very distinctive kind of love that Christ gives. It's beyond just any kind of love. It's a love that surpasses, surpasses even knowledge. Well, in the same way, Paul is saying to us that we can have God's peace that surpasses even an understanding. You don't have to know exactly how peace works to have peace. You can be at rest in Christ and not understand exactly how it's happened. That's how God provides, that you can be in the midst of the most chaotic turmoil in your life. And maybe some of you you know what I'm talking about. In the midst of chaos that makes absolute no sense have complete rest and peace that only God gives in the midst of that. That's of God, that kind of peace. The world cannot give that peace. It cannot offer that kind of peace. Finally, Paul writes, and it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He's painting this picture of kind of a sentry or a Roman guard, which they would be familiar with in Philippi, which would stand watch over the city. 
Likewise, God's peace stands guard over our hearts and our minds like a sentry watches over the wall of a fortress. He watches over our hearts. He guards us. Isaiah 26, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. How does a person receive God's peace? By receiving the peacemaker. Peacemaker. 